a show of hands tonight, I won't do that, but if I did, I think probably almost every hand would go up. How many of you have had the Jehovah's Witnesses call at your house, knock on your door? My guess is that almost everybody here has had that. That is such a common thing. It is so common for the Jehovah's Witnesses to go door to door knocking on doors that comedians even make jokes about that because everybody understands that, that they do that. Uh, it's, a, it's a very common practice of Jehovah's Witnesses. They're very zealous in their door-to-door evangelistic work, and I think we should certainly commend their zeal. We could learn something uh, about determination and zeal from watching what they do in regards to that practice. Uh, how do you handle that? How do you handle it when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door? Well, just a few simple observations. Is I'd say, first of all, don't be rude to them. A lot of people are, and I don't think there's any reason to be that way. Uh, be interested in their soul as they seem to be interested in yours. That'd be, a, that'd be a good thing, wouldn't it? They're there with interest in trying to teach you what they believe spiritually. So show that same interest to them. Agree to study with them, to listen to them, if they will also agree to listen to what you have to say. Now, that's typically a problem. Uh, they usually are not interested in learning what you have to say. They're usually typically just interested in telling you what they think is right. We've actually had cases where they canceled studies at our house when they found out that we wanted to share with them what we believed also. Uh, but if they will, if, they, if they'll engage in a legitimate give and take, then, then by all means, do that. Uh, I would also encourage you not to buy their literature. Apparently, from what I've been able to learn, they think that they have scored a victory if they're able to place a piece of literature in your house. Uh, and so I would just say, don't, don't take their literature. Just uh, kindly refuse it. Don't accept their literature. But tonight we want to talk about how to answer the Jehovah's Witnesses. I think that we want to be prepared, have some ready answers for them when they come knocking at our door. We want to talk about that for a few minutes tonight, just to sort of, with, with the idea in mind of equipping ourselves to be able to respond. This is a common thing. They come knocking. They're going to be at your door again, almost certainly. How will you answer them? And what if you could get them to engage in a period of Bible study? What kind of topics would you want to press them about uh, to sort of demonstrate what we think is their error on some significant doctrinal, doctrinal issues. Let me stop here for just a minute to thank everybody for being here. Uh, uh, we've been blessed with a nice rainy day in middle Tennessee, right here in the middle of the summer. It's good to have rain in the middle of the summer. Uh, if the weather's a little inclement tonight, and you, you've braved the elements, we commend you for that. Thanks for being here, and thanks for the encouragement that you give. What a great way to end the Lord's Day, to come together for another period of study and worship. We pray that God will be pleased, and we pray that we'll be edified. And we thank you all for being here, and we especially thank our visitors for coming tonight. Where are you going to start if you have a chance to talk to the Jehovah's Witnesses? Yeah, you know, they got a lot of really unusual, strange doctrinal views. For instance, did you know that they do not believe that you can accept blood transfusions if you're in a medical emergency? Um, they, they equate the biblical references to eating blood, uh, they, they equate that to taking a blood transfusion. They won't take a blood transfusion. Did you know that they uh, will not salute the flag? Uh, they will not recite the Pledge of Allegiance. 
They won't stand or sing the national anthem. They believe it's wrong to vote or to run for office. Hmm, all kinds of things like that. They, they observe no holidays. They won't even observe their own birthday. Um, the, they, they also teach and practice pretty exclusively that they should not even associate with people who are not other Jehovah's Witnesses on a, at a social level. They will not associate. But there's just a lot of things. Uh, that the Jehovah's Witnesses believe and practice that are odd, I think, that are contradictory, contradictory to the things that are taught in the Bible. But tonight what I want to do is talk with you with, about just a few of what I think are, are their more significant, significant doctrinal errors. The first one that I'd like to point out is that uh, we, we see that the Bible teaches plainly that man has an eternal soul, uh, and they deny that. Uh, they teach that when one dies, uh, nothing lives on. That when a person dies, they are just gone. Now, they believe that at a future time, God may choose to recreate those individuals from his memory. Now, he will do that, they claim, for those who have lived righteous lives. But for the wicked, they stay gone. They are annihilated. There is no beyond the grave for those who have lived wickedly. They are just gone forever. And so they don't believe what the Bible teaches about the eternal soul. We know that in the Scriptures, the word soul is used differently. At least three different ways the word soul is used in the Bible. We know that sometimes the word soul is just meant to represent the person or the whole man. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, uh, here uh, Peter says there were some who were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Well, there in that reference, the word soul is referring to the individuals, the whole persons, the whole beings. Noah's wife, his three sons and their wives, the eight souls that were saved uh, on the ark. Uh, saved from the flood. And so sometimes the word soul has that connotation of the whole person. At other times, it's, it is a reference to the life-giving part of, of an individual, the, the life of the flesh, sort of the animal life, the breath, what makes your heart tick, and so forth, the, the living part of a man. For instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 11, David said, I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. He was talking to King Saul. Remember, King Saul was pursuing him. And David said, you are hunting my soul to take it. You know what Saul wanted to do is kill him. He wanted to stop his life force. Uh, he, he wanted to take his soul in that sense. And so the Scriptures do use the word soul variously. But definitely the Scriptures use the word soul to denote a man's immortal spirit. In first, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Notice, there, there are some who are able to kill the body. Now, there's plenty of those people around, you know. You, you can accomplish that. You can take a gun or a knife and you can kill somebody's body. But notice, Jesus said they are not able to kill the soul. You can kill the body, but not kill the soul. That would indicate that the soul and the body are two different entities, right? Uh, here it's clearly used to denote the part of man 
that continues to exist beyond the grave, the part of him that continues to exist after the physical body is dead, here it's talking about the immortal soul. So, the scripture, now that's part of the confusion that you have when you talk about the Jehovah's Witnesses, because they'll, they'll make references like this and this, uh, they'll, they'll go to places that use the word soul, describing something different. But they won't focus on the, on the scriptures that talk about soul in terms to, of this immortal spirit of man. One of the very best places to see that life continues beyond physical death is in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, Britt, Britt read that for us just a few moments ago. Uh, and we won't take time to read that again, but Luke chapter 16 is a very familiar text to us. Notice that Lazarus died. The rich man also died. And so here's talking about their physical death. But the, but the account goes on to describe that they were, had a conscious existence. Now it doesn't say anything about Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus doesn't comment in, in this account. But it does talk about the rich man, and it talks about Abraham, who, by the way, was also physically dead, had been for centuries at this time. And they, they had a conversation. They talked back and forth. And Abraham even called upon the rich man to remember how things had been while he lived on earth. And so clearly, I think maybe there's not even a better place in all of the Bible to show the existence of man's soul beyond the grave than the rich man and Lazarus. Now, usually when we bring that up to the Jehovah's Witnesses, they respond by saying, well, yeah, but that's just a parable. That's just a parable, they say. Well, a couple responses to that. First of all, if it's a parable, it's different than other parables that Jesus taught. For instance, it, it names a man, Lazarus. And I don't think there's any other parable that gives the name of an individual and so forth. There's some diff the characteristics of this story are, are different than any other parable that Jesus taught. But I'll tell you what I'd be willing to do. I'd be willing to say, okay, so what if it is a parable? I don't think it is, but if it was a parable, does it teach a lie? Does it teach an untruth? Was Jesus deceiving people by what he said when he taught this incident of the rich man and Lazarus? They have, a hard, they have a hard time with this account, and the very best they can do is just discount it as a parable. But even if it is a parable, it surely teaches truth. And so the Bible is clear that man has an eternal soul. We, be, we can be ready to talk with them about that because they're really confused about that. And by the way, typically, if you are able to engage a Jehovah's Witness, they usually are not prepared to give, give answer. They, they sort of... And I, I don't mean to be disrespectful in saying it this way, but they sort of have a sales pitch memorized. When they come to your door, they've been trained about certain specific little presentations to offer. And if you're able to get them off of that and talk about some other things from the Bible, they're usually not very well prepared to answer. They will not be able to answer when we challenge them about man having an eternal soul. Furthermore, they deny... But the Bible clearly teaches that there is a real burning hell. Remember we said earlier, they teach the idea of spiritual annihilation for the wicked. Now, the righteous who die may be recreated. God, from his memory, may recreate the righteous at a later time. They think that he will. But in regards to the wicked dead, they're gone. They're annihilated. They no longer exist and will never exist again. But look what Jesus taught in Mark chapter 9. 
verse 43 beginning, If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Emphasis here on this last phrase where the worm dies not, and the fire is not quenched. Now, that's got to be talking about something other than our physical body, right? Because in regards to our physical body, what happens? Well, with the physical body, your body may be eaten by worms, but it will eventually be consumed, and the worm then will die, right? So here, Jesus is describing a situation where the worm never dies. That couldn't be talking about the physical body because with your physical body, your physical body would be consumed, the worm will eat up all there is, and then the worm himself will die. This cannot be talking about physical reality. This is talking about the soul, clearly, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, the Hebrew writer says, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. So, under Moses' law, they died. How, of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified in an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Wait a minute. If the worst thing that can happen to a wicked person is to die and thus be annihilated, right? what would be this sorer punishment that the Hebrew writer is describing? For that matter, if, if there is no existence beyond the grave, what could be worse than dying? And yet the Hebrew writer says there is a sorer punishment awaiting those uh, who uh, sin against God and who deny the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that passage would also teach the idea of a eternal damnation, an eternal punishment, a real burning hell. There's a lot more we could argue about that. But, again, the Jehovah's Witnesses say there is no such place. The Bible definitely teaches that there is. You know that the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is not the divine Son of God? The Bible says that he is. The Bible says Jesus is the divine Son of God, but the Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that. And in particular, they, they don't believe that Jesus is eternal like the Father. Let me read you uh, some quotes. This J.F. Rutherford was one of the principal founders of the Jehovah's Witness movement. The guy that you probably have heard of more often is Charles Taze Russell. But this Judge Rutherford was uh, one of the very early prominent leaders in the Jehovah's Witnesses. And here's what he said about Jesus. He said, It is a dishonor to his name and a reproach to his name to teach the people that there are three gods in one or one in three. The great Jehovah God is completely separate and distinct from all. He is the creator. All others are creatures. Notice, all others are creatures. The great Jehovah is the God. The Son, the Logos, is a God. In truth, when Jesus was on earth, he was a perfect man, nothing more, nothing less. Jesus was not God the Son. They don't believe that, you see. Here's another quote from their book, Reconciliation. He, Jesus, was the beginning of God's creation and from and after that time was the active agent by whom Jehovah God created all things that were created. So basically they're saying Jesus was the first thing God created. We're going to talk about that in a minute from the Scriptures. And then one more quote from their book, Make Sure of All Things. 
Jesus the Christ, a created individual, is the second greatest personage of the universe. He was formed countless millenniums ago as the first and only direct creation by his father, Jehovah. So that's pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, I don't think we have to have a lot of help understanding what they're saying in regards to those things. What does the, what does the Scripture teach? Well, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, Under the Son, He, the Father, saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. The Father calls Jesus God. In Matthew chapter 1, beginning verse 21, She shall bring forth the Son. Joseph is... It's being told by, from an, by an angel to Joseph that Mary's going to bear a child. She shall bring forth a, a son that shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So here the angel references the prophecy of Isaiah, and he says the one born will be God with us. That prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. There's the, the quote from Isaiah. One of the clearest places is in John chapter 1, beginning verse 1. In fact, this is so plain, you may very well be familiar with the fact that Jehovah's Witnesses have their own translation of the Bible because there are a few places in, in standard or typical or trustworthy translations that they just can't get around, and this is one of them. They've changed this. But here's from the King James Version. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. That's talking about Jesus, right? The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. I want to draw your special attention to this. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, let's think about that. If Jesus Himself is created, and that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, right? That Jesus created being. But in John 1, it says, without Him was not anything, not anything, Without him was not anything made that was made. Well, if he's a, a created being, then that wouldn't make sense, would it? In, in fact, that'd be a self-contradictory statement. Now, real quickly, let me show you some of the verses that they want to use to teach their position on this. I think the Scriptures are clear. We just looked at them. But one of the passages they like to use is Colossians 1, beginning verse 13, where it says, He's delivered us from the power of darkness, translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the, vis the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now, they like to latch on to that expression that he's the firstborn of every creature. Remember, we read their quote where they say, Jesus is the first thing that God created. And they would use this phrase to try to, to emphasize that. He's the firstborn of every creature. But what this expression re references is the idea of rank. In rank, or in degree, he, he is above all else. In rank, he is the firstborn of every creature. 
back in Old Testament times in particular, we know that the firstborn in the family had the highest rank in the family, right? And so this expression denotes his position in rank. But in regard to chronology of when he was created, notice this passage says the same thing. By him were all things created that are in heaven and are on earth. Well, if he's a created being, he didn't create himself, but this says all things were created by him, all things in heaven and on earth. Therefore, he couldn't be a created being, right? By, by him, all things were created by him. So this passage that they want to use to try and teach their position actually teaches contrary to their position. He's not a created being, couldn't be a created being. And just remember that this expression right here, firstborn of every creature, is a reference to his rank or his position, not chronology of creation. Another place they like to go to try to do the same thing. Revelation 3, verse 14. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. They'd like to grab that phrase and say, He he was the first thing God created. He was the God decided to create and he began his creative work by creating Jesus. He's the beginning of the creation of God. Thayer says that this phrase means, though, that by which anything begins to be the active cause. And so when it says he is the beginning of the creation of God, what it means is he's the active cause of all that God created. This would be in agreement with the other verses that we looked at. All things were created by him. And so, again... Their view that Jesus is not the divine Son of God is in error. The Bible teaches that he is. The Bible teaches that all the righteous are going to inherit heaven. Now, you are probably almost certainly familiar with the peculiar doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses that not every, not every righteous person is going to go to heaven. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that there's a, a, an exact number of people, 144,000. 144,000 are going to go to be with God in heaven. Exactly 144,000. Not one more, not one less. Exactly 144,000. Then their view is that the rest of the righteous, now that doesn't encompass all of those who live righteously on earth. The rest of the righteous, remember they said, God will recreate them from his memory. He will recreate these righteous individuals. And the rest of the righteous are going to inherit this earth. God's going to put the earth back into its perfect condition like it was when Adam and, Le Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden. He's going to get rid of everything bad, put everything back perfect. It will be a, it will be a, a wonderful place. But other than the 144,000, the rest of the righteous will inherit the earth. They will not go to heaven. Now, when we think about that and, and in our minds ask, where could they come up with a notion like that? We know that the answer is they come up with that from the book of Revelation. And it's mentioned two places in the book of Revelation, this number, 144,000. In chapter 7, verse 4, I heard the number of them that were sealed, and there were sealed, and hundred and forty and four thousand. But notice they were of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. It goes on. So, when we talk with Jehovah's Witnesses, one of the really interesting questions to ask them is, do you believe? First of all, get them on record. Do you believe that there will only be 144,000 to go to heaven? They will say, yes, they agree. 
But then ask them, do you believe that every one of those persons will be a physical Jew, one of the literal descendants of Jacob? And they will say, no, they don't believe that. But they got a problem, right? Because the very same verse that speaks of the 144,000 goes on to describe them and says they're all physical Jews. The problem, they have the problem of trying to force a literal interpretation on a figurative passage. And you always run into trouble when you try to do that. They have that problem here. Uh, and, and so, again, this is figurative. This is, this is not a literal passage. And the number, 144,000, is simply a number that denotes fullness or completeness. completeness. Twelve is a number of fullness or completeness. Twelve times twelve is 144. 144,000 then would just be an exaggerated, an exaggerated expression denoting fullness or completion. That's what we have here with the number 144,000. The other place where that is mentioned, by the way, is in chapter 14 of Revelation. We know Revelation is full of figurative language. The only place they can find that number 144,000 is here in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, chapter 14. In chapter 14, beginning verse 3, it says, They sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. Now, I think there's some other arguments to be made from this text. But just try to remember to challenge them about this. Ask them if they believe that all of the 144,000 will be virgins, but notice they're not defiled with women. And so it would be necessary then that the 144,000 all be male virgins, right? Ask them if they believe it. Ask them if the number's literal. They'll say yes. Ask them if they believe that all of the 144,000 will be male virgins, and they're going to say, no, they don't believe that. They believe the number is comprised of both men and women. And so they got a problem of consistency. And the problem is they're trying to force a literal interpretation on a figurative passage, and that always leads to trouble. And so, uh, again, their view is that not all the righteous are going to go to heaven. The Scriptures teach that all will. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, beginning, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Your reward is in heaven. And that's the reward that we're looking for. And so their view of the 144,000 contradicts what the Scriptures teach, that all the righteous will inherit heaven. They teach that this earth is not going to be destroyed. Again, now the Bible says that the earth and all of the physical universe is going to be destroyed. The Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that. They do not believe that the earth will be destroyed. This is actually a part of that that we were just talking about. Their view, 144,000 to heaven, the rest of the righteous will inherit the earth, a, a refashioned or refurbished earth. Uh, so they have that view that the earth will never be destroyed. But I think the verse that they just absolutely can't answer is Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. The best answer I've ever had one of them give me about this verse is to say, well, that's just talking about the, the evil things. 
what's bad on earth is going to be burned up. But it actually says that the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. That doesn't, doesn't fit with their explanation, does it? The earth is going to be destroyed. The Bible teaches that. They don't agree. And then finally, again, there's so many things that Jehovah's Witnesses teach that I think are contrary to what the Bible plainly states. These are, I think, some of their more significant doctrinal problems. And one of their huge doctrinal problems is the answer to the simple question, what must I do to be saved? Uh, as I was saying earlier, if you get them sidetracked a little bit from what they've come prepared to present to you, if you can challenge them a little bit, get them off of their... I don't want to be disrespectful, but if you can get them off of their sales pitch or their prepackaged presentation, they, they typically uh, don't have very ready answers. And they have a big problem in trying to respond to what is simply the plan of salvation. What must one do in order to be saved? Officially, they don't believe what the Bible teaches about salvation. Here's a couple of quotes. Uh, this, uh, this one's from their book, all of these from the Watchtower uh, Society. You know, they, that's their publishing wing, and that's where they put out all their literature. This book, booklet is called The Truth That Leads to Eternal Life. Here's what they say. When love for God moves you so that you want to do his will, then it is proper that you go to him in prayer. It is appropriate that you tell Jehovah that you want to belong to him and that you want to do his will. After you have made your dedication to Jehovah to do his will, he will expect you to keep it. What then does Christian baptism signify? It is not. It is not a washing away of one's sins because cleansing from sin comes only through faith in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, 7. Rather, it is a public demonstration testifying that one has made a solemn dedication to Jehovah God and is presenting himself to do his will. I tell you, that sounds, that sounds like that could come from the Baptist church, doesn't it? Uh, because it talks about prayer. Uh, the Baptist would talk about saying the sinner's prayer. Uh, and then baptism comes as a way of public demonstration. In other words, and our Baptist friends say it's an outward show of an inward grace. You've been saved and you're baptized to show that you've been saved. This quote almost exactly sounds like what our Baptist friends would tell us, and they're, of course, very wrong about that. Here's what their booklet, New Creation, says. The view of the disciples, otherwise calling themselves Christian, is that baptism, immersion in water, is for the remission of sins. We cannot accept this to be a correct view of baptism. To us, it is neither scriptural nor reasonable. We cannot believe that the Word has made the eternal welfare of our race dependent upon their knowledge of and obedience to any such institution. They deny the necessity of baptism for the remission of sin. You know the verses. We don't even take time to read them here. We're going a little long, but we know Acts 2.38. Baptism is for the remission of sins. First Peter 3.21. Baptism doth also now save us. Mark 16.16. 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And we could just multiply the verses and we could talk at length about the necessity of baptism for the remission of sins. The Bible teaches it. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe it. And so there are six key doctrines that I, that I think we can be prepared to discuss with the Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to our door. Again, I want to encourage we should never be rude to them or dismissive of their zeal for spreading their message. We should be open, willing to discuss. If they'll engage with us in a give and take, then let's, let's have that study. 
And I, I would urge you to use your judgment and discretion if it's clear that they're not interested in a give and take. If they're only there to present and won't listen, then you won't really have any common ground to go forward on. But if they will, if you will listen to what they say on the basis that they will listen to what you say, then by all means, let's have that discussion. And here are six things. This, these are six key doctrines that they believe in contradiction to what the Bible has to say. And we can show them pretty quickly uh, their error if they will accept it. So let's be ready to answer the Jehovah's Witnesses. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say tonight. I hope it's helpful as as way of reminder and preparation to sort of make sure we're ready when they come knocking. Thanks for listening. We're going to sing a song of invitation. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, if you need to obey the gospel, or if you need the prayer of the saints to be restored to a faithful relationship with God, we'd be glad to pray with you and for you. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing this song. Follow me, follow me.